If you've not been just stuck at home, secluded, you know that we live in pretty difficult times. What is making the times we live in so difficult? Is the economy? That could be part of it. Government? Yeah. It's a problem. Media? Media distorts a lot of things, gets things messed up. Debt, national debt, personal consumer debt. Expensive health care, health problems. Crime, drug and alcohol addiction, deficiency in education, terrorism, Poverty, racism, family breakdowns, wars. And that's, we'll stop there for now. These are real problems in these areas, but they're symptoms of the cause, causes. We've been studying Second Timothy for the past several weeks. And in today's text, the Apostle Paul says that, prophetically speaking, we should know that difficult times are coming and have come. Why does he bring up this issue now in in the course of his letter that he's writing to, to his disciple Timothy? He's writing from prison. He knows he's likely soon to be executed. He is um, trying to prepare Timothy to take over and to take on the, the, the leadership of, of the church in Ephesus in Turkey for him once he's gone. And in the process, uh, uh, he's dealing with a major difficulty that Timothy is facing, which is opponents to the truth that he and the Apostle Paul have been teaching. Truth opponents. And so he, in the end of chapter 2, he taught them how, he, he told Timothy, this is how you can help correct the truth opponents. How you do it with patience, gentleness, kindness, gently correcting them, hoping that God may grant them repentance so they can understand the truth. But now he's talking about these truth opponents who are resistant to that and who are hardcore and who remain opposed to the truth and are seeking to capture others by their falsehood. And in light of the difficult times that were already coming and that were upon them and that are coming in our day as well, um, he's writing to Timothy in light of this and writing how God's people must be rooted and grounded more than ever in God's truth. So so what is causing these difficult times, both in his day and in our day? I'm going to have you stand. We're going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But understand this. Uh, in the last days, there will come diff- times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come to, to never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the, the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Father, we are challenged to consider the difficulty of the times we live in. We're, we're hard-pressed to to grasp all that you're talking about in this passage. We, we don't like thinking about these things. But help us, Father, through the lens of your word that gives us truth as well as hope as to how to live in light of these truths for Christ's glory and in his strength. Give us wisdom and open our hearts to what you want us to understand from this text today, your living and powerful word. It's true for all times, true for all people, true for all places, and gives us what we need to know to live godly lives. So help us, Father, and change us in Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. You may be seated. So even though Timothy is to seek to correct some who oppose the truth, he needs to understand what the Old Testament and New Testament prophets, as well as Jesus, uh, said about the last days. They have said that in the last days will come times of difficulty, times of trouble, times of distress, times of danger. What exactly are the last days? Are they? Is that when um, Nicolas Cage gets left behind? Peter said that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost was the beginning of the last days. He said that in Acts chapter 2 in his, his first sermon, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The author to Hebrews said in chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the last days refers to that that phrase the last days refers to the time beginning with Jesus resurrection until the time he returns so it covers that whole scope in Paul's first letter to Timothy appropriately called 1st Timothy he said of, of the, this of the last days now the the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons so now he is further warning him that the last days will be times of difficulty. And for sure they, they are. It is clear from the context that Paul isn't just talking about the future last days, the last last days. There will be some last last days before Jesus returns. But he's, he's talking about the current phase of the last days that Timothy was living in. Because he says later on in, in, in verse 5, after he describes how wicked these people are, he says, avoid them. So in the, the, the wicked people in your time, avoid them. And in, in the latter part of the chapter of, of this passage, he's, he goes on to explain why Timothy should avoid them. So he says in verse 2, 4, and he's, 4 tells us he's going to explain why the last days will be so difficult, why they'll be so distressful. The problem will be people. 
Yeah, that's the problem with the last days is people. Have you noticed that? Yeah, it'd be pretty easy to get on if, if without people. Well, what's going on with people in the last days? Well, it's what they love. It's what they love. Because he starts out in this list of 18 vices, and we're guaranteed to pick out some of your favorite ones, hopefully. This list of 18 vices, he starts out by saying people will be lovers of self, and he finishes by saying they'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So they have a love problem. In, um, in verse 2, he lists these first eight vices. And he, as I said, he starts out with lovers of self. People will be self-centered. Sometimes you hear it said, and not infrequently, I've heard this said over the years, that you, you know you can't love others until you love yourself first. That's said often. And similarly, it's also said things like this. The reason for all these bad behaviors is because of lack of self-esteem, low self-esteem. So the reason this person's a murderer, the reason this person's a, a thief, the reason this person is a, a drug pusher, the reason this person is um, a pervert is because of low self-esteem. So Paul is clearly saying in this text that the reason for the difficulty of the craziness, the wickedness of the last days is because people will be lovers of self. So how do we understand those other things, about like low self-esteem and, and loving yourself before you can love others, in light of that? Well, uh, we, we do need to respect ourselves, in meaning we need to, to understand that we're created in God's image. Every, every single person who's ever been born is made in God's image. And so as such, they're not junk, they're not worthless, they're not trash. So that... That is a right perspective. And at the same time, when we do wrong, we, we're not to avoid feeling conviction of, of the sin by just denying that we have done wrong in, in order to keep our self-esteem intact. Uh, if, if we're not living good lives, we're not supposed to convince ourselves that we are in the name of having positive self-esteem. What Paul is talking about is the problem that is so rampant today. That basically people are self-centered. Many people are self-centered. Everything revolves around them. They're like grown-up babies. What I, I want what I want when I want it, according to my desires. I do what is right in my own eyes. I live to please me. It's my way or the highway. Isn't that what we've seen, been seeing in the, the venomous divisiveness in the, in the current political fallout? It's my way or the highway. It's, just, it's all about me, my perspective. I don't care about yours. It's one thing for those who are not Christians, who are not Christ followers, to love themselves for their controlling desire to be pleasing themselves. It's sad and grievous when those who do identify as followers of Christ are justifying their self-love as if it is biblical. There is a widely followed female Christian blogger who divorced her husband without biblical grounds and who started dating the celebrity soccer player Abby Wambach 
who was a woman, divorced her husband on unbiblical grounds, dating a woman. She justifies her divorce and her new dating relationship by saying that the greatest gift of any of us gives to the world is our true self. Really? Is that what Jesus and the apostles taught? The greatest gift we have to offer the world is our true self? You don't want my true self. It's not a gift. As she, in her writing, essentially, she is saying that people flourish as they obey their desires. She says a woman should live her truth as bravely as she can. She says with the choices she has made, nothing can separate her from God's love. Yeah, it's a problem. She's doing what so many do taking truths and twisting them to serve her selfish choices. We are to find our happiness and joy in God, for sure, but in a trusting, obedient relationship to God's truth, not sinful, self-serving choices. That nothing can separate us from God's love is to be a comfort in suffering for Christ, not as if his love is, it means his, he approves of, of doing what we want. What, what this blogger is doing is not rare, sadly. Over the years, I've heard um, firsthand many people who, when they have made blatantly sinful choices, including unbiblical divorces, claim that they have never been closer to God. They, they make these sinful choices, then they, they say, God is, is on my side, and I've never felt better, and I've never been closer to God than I am now. They're certain they have his approval while they are serving themselves rather than denying themselves and obeying Christ's truth. Now, I camped on that one for a while because that's really the, the mother load of all the rest, so I'm not going to spend that much time on, on the rest of these 18, so you can, you can feel good about that. But closely related to love of self is love of, love of money. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Having money is not evil. Even having lots of it necessarily is not evil. But loving it, never being content with what you have, using it just to serve yourself and not for serving God and others, and being willing to sin to get it, that's a problem. He talks about being proud and arrogant. So the word proud has to do with um, the sense of boasting and bragging. Arrogance has to do with uh, the inward inflated opinion of oneself. He talks about being abusive. The word is, we get the word blasphemy from it, so he's talking about abusive speech. And he talks about being disobedient to parents. And what that means is being disobedient to parents. He talks about being ungrateful. So our times are characterized by a posture of entitlement rather than gratitude. There's a presumption that I have the right for my life to go my way with ease and comfort. If I don't get what I want, somebody owes me. Gratitude for what we do have is getting rarer and rarer. And he talks about unholy. So um, being unholy is, is being opposed to God, rejecting God's ways, godless, 
where nothing is sacred. There's nothing, you don't treat anything with, with sacredness, with God, godly value. And he talks about being heartless and unappeasable and slanderous in verse 3. So we get six more here. Heartless is unloving. It's being hard-hearted. It has to do with not having normal human affection, particularly family love. So um, we see that in, in particular for breakdown of families and terrible things done by family members. And uh, people not getting married and people just going childless, which is not wrong. To You don't have to get married. You don't have to have children. But, but more and more of that, just not, not having normal desires for that. Talk about being unappeasable. Unappeasable is being irreconcilable, unforgiving, hostility that admits no truce. And with that is people carry, it's, it's incredible how people can carry severe bitterness toward others for, for weeks and months and years and never forgive. Slanderous, we're on number 11, by the way, so we're, we're, we'll get there. Slanderous, the word is diaboloi, that we get the word devil from that. So the devil is a slanderer. You might have heard some slanderous comments, like one or two slanderous comments during the elections. Being without self-control. So... I know you all exercise self-control for your Thanksgiving feast, so I'm not going to bring that up. That's a cheap shot. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Brutal, being vicious, wild, untamed. No, we're not talking about the toddler room here. We're talking about grown-up toddlers. Not loving good. So once again, he, he identifies what we love or what we don't love as, as at the root of the problem. And then he gives us four more in verse 4. He talks about being treacherous. Treacherous is, is being traitorous. It's used of Judas and religious leaders betraying Jesus. That person violates trust, is a backstabber, and will throw you under the bus. Reckless, being rash, thoughtless, impetuous, Swollen with conceit. That means extremely proud, insanely arrogant. I mean, who here wants to be known as being insanely arrogant? If you're insanely arrogant, stop it. Mildly arrogant is not good, but better than being insanely arrogant. And then he finishes up by saying they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That connects back to where he started. Being lovers of self, finishing with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. When you love self and pleasure more than God, you get all these other vices naturally. It's a breeding ground for them. This doesn't mean that every person who loves self and pleasure more than God exhibits all these vices in obvious or overt ways. But when people love self and pleasure more than God, these vices will be more widespread and, and acute, like, well, like our culture. And then in verse 5, he, he's, he concludes this list, or he, he kind of gives like a summary description of the opponents of the truth that, <clears throat> that Timothy's been battling. 
even though the vice list applies to society in general, Paul especially has in mind the truth opponents. He says they had the appearance of godliness. They, they had the appearance of godliness. They held to the outward form of religiosity. But they denied its power. So what does that mean? They, they hold to the form of godliness. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. What's he saying? Well, it means they were devoted to their, their strict external practices that they had. So this particular group had, they, they said, uh, you're, you're holier if you don't get married. They said, if you avoid certain foods. Uh, they, they taught myths and genealogies. They, um, they, they got in useless debates about words. And so they, they thought they were, they're, they're being very religious, but, but their behavior was not controlled by the power of the gospel. Their spirituality was merely a shell without the transforming power of the truth of the gospel. Paul had similar words for the false teachers in, in Titus' context. So Titus was on the island of Crete. And so Paul said this in Titus chapter 1. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the, the sad thing is it's easy to go to church. It's easy to do churchy things while not living in the power of God's truth. You could say, God, I'll make a deal with you. If you won't mess with the things I love, I'll, um, I'll go to church for a couple hours a week. Is it a deal? Deal. Lots of people do that. And that's what he's talking about here. Paul says Timothy is to avoid these people, to have nothing to do with them, Turn away from them, he says. They're not to be a part of the church fellowship, but not have access to the people in the church. And here's why. Verse 6. For the reason that Timothy is to avoid them and to keep them from having access to the people in the church is because they're creepy creepers. They're creepy creepers. You don't need creepy creepers creeping around in your church. They enter homes secretly with hidden motives. One, one way to say it is they, they worm their way into households. They especially target what he calls weak women. And what, what, made, what made these women weak? They were, the word means foolish, frivolous, or otherwise vulnerable. They are spiritually immature if they are even in Christ at all. What especially makes them weak and vulnerable is they are burdened with sins. They, they have a sin burden. They're weighed down, loaded down with sins or the guilt of sins. And as a result, they are led astray by various passions and desires. So he's not talking about all the women. He's saying there's certain women that, that they're targeting. They're dragging along their load of sins, has enslaved them to various passions. And so they're driven by their emotions and feelings. It makes them easy targets for creepers who appear to have the answers for their problems. And he continues talking about this in verse 7. These women are eager to learn what they might, what might help them deal with their emotional pain and the turmoil of being burdened with sins. He says they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The false teachers seem to offer what appeals to them. So they follow their, their, their religious teachings, their myths and their worthless word games, their false religiosity. It's like what Peter says about the false teachers that he was exposing in his context. 
In Second Peter, he writes, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. So they can hardly lead others to know the truth that will set them free. <clears throat> In our day, sin-burdened people, not only women and men as well, they read books, they read magazines, blogs, and go to self-help sections, seminars, and counselors, but they never come to a saving knowledge of the truth of, of the gospel. You've known people this way. You've known people who, who live this way. They're always into some new teaching or some counseling or, or the latest self-help techniques or whatever, and they never help them change. They just don't change. They keep cycling into the same old self-destructive and sinful behaviors over and over again. And so they're happy for a while, then they're crushed, and they're happy and they're crushed, and, and they're, they're all over the place. They think they found the answer, and, and they despair when it fails them. What makes coming to a knowledge of the truth all the, all the more um, challenging today is that we are far more influenced by what appeals to our emotions and passions by sound bites and images than we are by objective truth. Like the blogger who said that, that she bravely lives her own truth. She bravely lives her own truth. The Oxford Dictionary released its 2016 word of the year. And that is post-truth. Post-truth. What is that? Well, they define it this way. Objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotions or personal belief. In other words, how I feel about what is said overrules or is more important than whether it is actually true. A post-truth culture leads to equate disagreement with hatred. You disagree with me, you hate me. That's hate speech. Loving me means agreeing with me. So if you want to love me, agree with me. And as many speakers on college campuses who've been chased from university campuses by angry students can tell you, when feelings are equated with a person's identity or even their reality, contradicting those feelings is the same as attacking the person. And that produces for difficult times because we can't have conversations about truth. It's all word battles. It's all my my. My truth versus your truth. My feelings are more valuable than your feelings. It's my tribe against your tribe. God designed us to live by a view of the world or a worldview that is formed by his truth. If our worldview is not shaped by God's truth, then we're going to let it be shaped by something else. All of us live according to some truth system. All of us have some, some worldview, whether we're conscious of it or not. So our worldview answers at least these three questions. So if you, 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 you have a worldview that answers these three questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? 
what has shaped our culture's worldview for over the last hundred plus years is the Darwinian worldview. And that is, it goes like this. We are here as a product of impersonal forces of time plus chance plus physical matter plus random mutations that were preserved through survival of the fittest. We're here as a function of time plus chance plus stuff plus random mutations. That's, that's what we got going for us. And if Darwin was right, there's no ultimate meaning or purpose to life beyond what you choose. You're born, you suffer, you die, that's it. That's a really hopeful worldview, isn't it? Oh, uh, perhaps if you're lucky, you might get recycled as organic manure. Yeah. But beyond that, you're just a number that have happened to come up in the great casino of the universe. And that, as that worldview has permeated our culture, it, it makes for difficult times. There's all the difference in the world between that worldview and, and the gospel worldview. The gospel worldview is, is better, I think. The gospel worldview goes like this. You were created by a loving, holy, gracious, good, and wise God in his image to know and to enjoy him and others created in his image. The problem is you're ruined by sin. So you rebel and reject his good and perfect will. But God in his great mercy has provided a way for you to be forgiven and freed from your sin and to be restored to a right relationship with him. He did this by sending his son, who shared his very nature as God, to become one of us in addition to being God's son, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve to die, taking our punishment in our place. He was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death, so that whoever believes in him will be forgiven and freed from sin and have eternal, holy, joyful life with God. So that's more hopeful, I think. That's, that works a lot better. The gospel is the greatest, most necessary truth for us to learn. Apart from learning and, and believing this, we will always be learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, in verse 8, Paul gives us an illustration of what will happen to the truth opponents. He brings up our old friends Janus and Jambres. He's talking about the magicians who imitated some of the miraculous plagues that God did through Moses in Egypt when he was trying to persuade Pharaoh to, to release uh, the, the Jews. So, for example, Moses' brother Aaron threw down his staff and it became a snake. The magicians threw down their staffs and they also became snakes. And, and Aaron's snake swallowed their snakes. In case you were wondering... You don't find the names of, of, of these magicians in, in the Old Testament. Uh, it came up later in Jewish tradition. But Paul uses them to illustrate false teachers, truth opponents, who appear to offer an alternative to God's truth that he gives through uh, his approved messengers. 
the truth opponents were corrupted, he says. They're corrupt, they're depraved in mind. If you oppose God's truth, you're corrupted in mind because your mind is meant to work on God's truth. It doesn't operate correctly on falsehood. As a result, they are disqualified regarding the faith, he says. They are proven worthless for the faith. Disqualified is the opposite of the word that he uses back in in chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, present yourself approved as one who rightly handles the word of truth. So if you rightly handle the word of truth, you're approved as God's messenger. If you don't, you're disqualified. You're proven um, worthless for that purpose. And then he says in verse 9 that they won't get very far. So this is good news. The truth opponents won't get very far. They, they, they won't make further progress in advancing their falsehood. Sooner or later, their folly, that is, their foolish refusal to understand and believe God's truth will be plain and obvious to all. So Christ preserves his church, his true church, in his truth. Just as the magicians failed to copy Moses' Some of his miracles, they couldn't, like, they tried as they might, they couldn't produce gnats. They just, man, we, we can do frogs, we can do snakes, but we can't do gnats. So gnats were uh, defeated, defeated them. And they couldn't produce boils on skin, but they received boils on their skin. So they couldn't do all the, the, the signs that Moses did. So it will be clearly manifest to the truth opponents who are, are that they're worthless regarding the faith and will be exposed as charlatans, just like the magicians of Moses' day. So hopefully you're able to um, spot counterfeit gospels. Counterfeit gospels are not something that we just agree to disagree with. It's a matter of eternal life versus eternal death. So our task is Christ's church is not to fix all the problems of the difficult times we live in. I mean, we're to do all the good we can, and we, if we can help with some of those problems, that's good. But it's, it's not our, our task. Our responsibility is to trust, to treasure, to spread, and live the truth of the gospel in the midst of our own decaying culture and among the nations. In a culture of lovers of self, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, which means that we will be willing to suffer for the gospel and endure hardship for others' good, that they might see and and hear the truth of the gospel and follow him. In a culture of lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, we are to love God as our highest pleasure. So let's pray and, and ask for God to do this in our hearts. Father, we, apart from your grace, love ourselves more than you or anything, anyone else. We love pleasure more than we love you. We love money. We were disobedient. We're swollen with pride. We're treacherous. We're reckless. We're unholy. But you granted us the gift of your Son, who perfectly 
loved you more than his own pleasure. You were his greatest pleasure. He did anything but serve himself. He, he laid down his life so that people who were rebels against him, people who, whose sins put him to death on the cross, otherwise they couldn't be rescued, he loved us with an everlasting love. He loved us so much that he was willing to suffer your wrath, your punishment against our sins in himself on the cross. And you defeated the power of, of sin and death that we deserved through his resurrection and his death and his ongoing life for us. So we're thankful, Father, that even though we live in difficult times and even though we, we, get, we stray into being part of the problem rather than part of the solution, you've given us a true hope, a, a true um, power that we can live in, truth that we can live by, that offers hope to others and that allows us to grow in, in greater love for you and greater love for others. Father, help us to be what, what you have redeemed us to be in Jesus. Help us, Father, in re recalling his great sacrifice for us, how he lived the perfect life, how he would have been justified just to leave us to ourselves, but he stepped down out of his perfect holy relationship with you and took on the rags of human flesh and he rescued us. So one day, Father, you've promised us a, a world where there won't be more, any more difficult times. There won't be any more falsehood. There won't be any more lies about who you are and who we are. The truth will be fully realized. But until that time, help us, Father, to, to do the difficult task of living as, as a people who love and live by your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.